We're in our sixth week in this series that we've entitled The Fugitive. And uh, we've been looking at the life of Jonah, and Jonah is a runaway prophet. God calls Jonah to go to a place called Nineveh. Jonah doesn't like Nineveh. It's the sworn enemies of God. And he says, I don't want to go that way, so I'm going to head towards the opposite direction. And as we've been learning week in and week out, Jonah continually, in first and second chapter of Jonah, rebels against God. And as a result of that, God doesn't just leave him and say, you can do whatever you want, but he pursues him and he brings great pain and suffering into the life of Jonah uh, that is culminated in Jonah being swallowed for three days and three nights in the belly uh, of a great fish. And uh, we see that at that point, Jonah in chapter 2 cries out to God with a prayer of desperation. And uh, after that prayer, he is spat out by the great fish and the word of the Lord comes again. So I want us to look at that uh, and uh, then look at our uh, text this morning and, and go from there to see what the word of God has to say for us. So if you would stand for the reading of God's word as we look at just a couple verses this morning, starting in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. We learned last week just in that passage, the grace of God that we are given a second chance. Jonah's given a second chance, and the second chance is the same as the first chance. Because notice what it says in verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And look at what it says this time around. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. And it says in verse 4, it says, on the first day Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed. Let's just stop there. Father God, we come before you and we come to an incredible part of our passage of the book of Jonah. Lord, it's during this time that Jonah hears from you a second time. We don't know how he heard it, but he does. And this time, Lord, he obeys. And Lord, there's some here this morning uh, who are hearing your voice a second, third, a hundredth time. And what an example Jonah brings that uh, we can obey this time. That no matter the, all the disobedience that we've been a part of uh, in the days and weeks and even years ago, that when your word comes to us anew, there's an opportunity to obey. So Lord, I pray that uh, we would see the blessing and the opportunity that Jonah saw. He would be standing before a great city, and we too stand before great cities around us. And Lord, while so many times we're busy rebelling against you, there are cities who are on their way to hell. Father, these cities are filled with people, people whom you love, people whom you uh, sent your son Jesus uh, to die for. And Lord, we uh, stand in awe of that. Lord, give us a perspective, give us an understanding of what your heart is for the city. Lord, we find ourselves in the middle of a growing population. What an opportunity, what a uh, chance to lead people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, not just here in Sugar Grove, but through our missionaries and through our missionary adventures uh, to faraway places, Lord, we can reach uh, where you told us to go, and that is to the uttermost parts of the world. So, Lord, I pray that you would instill in our hearts a heart of evangelism, a heart of missions, a heart that sees people as you see them, and in doing so, 
that we will live out the Great Commission. Allow us to be a Jonah this morning who goes into a great city, a city so difficult to reach, and yet that's exactly what he does. Lord, give us a heart for the world around us. In Christ's name we pray. You may be seated. Have you ever missed out on a set of instructions that were given and wanted to look back and say, man, it would have been very helpful had I just listened or had I just read the directions and followed what the Creator wanted me uh, to do with a certain assembly of something or a task that was given. Jonah finds himself in that place uh, today. In Jonah chapter 3, the word of the Lord comes to him. And instead of playing games with God like he did in chapter 1, in chapter 2, Jonah says he is going to do what God has called him to do. Now this would not be an easy task. Jonah would be uh, is going to be sent to a place called Nineveh. Now, we would say, well, okay, he's being called to a place a couple hundred uh, miles away from where he is at at that point. Uh, that's, that's kind of a journey. I mean, that would be something in the neighborhood of us being called to um, somewhere in Ohio or, um, or a part of the Midwest where we would say, okay, that, that's a little more than what I was expecting. I'd rather just serve the Lord right where I'm at. But Jonah's asked to do more than just get on a camel or a horse or, or just walk uh, to this place called Nineveh. Nineveh was a place that hated God and hated God's people. And so this isn't like just going uh, down a couple miles down the street to a new place to preach about Christ, but it's to go to the enemies of yours and your God's to proclaim a message that they would hate, a message that in so many ways they would desire nothing more than to kill you to end your preaching and your message. This is a huge commission that Jonah is given. And it's when we look at the city of Nineveh that we understand the huge opportunity that Jonah had and also the liabilities and the issues that Jonah brought to the mission field of Nineveh. For Nineveh, it was a place that Jewish people wouldn't be found. He would be the only one there preaching the only message about God. Have you ever felt like that before? Where you are the only Christian in all your school. You're the only Christian in your entire workplace. You're the only Christian in your entire neighborhood. Nobody else is living like you. Nobody else is preaching like you. You're the only one. Well, if you've ever been there before you're starting to feel probably like Jonah did when he entered into that great city of Nineveh. For Nineveh was a city that would destroy anyone who did not worship their gods. So what are we to learn about this? The first thing I want us to understand, even before we get to our outlines, is where has God strategically called you to serve? Nineveh was Jonah's place. It doesn't mean that as we read the Bible that we say we're all to go to Nineveh. Of course, you know Nineveh is in the northern part of Iraq, uh, near the modern-day city of Mosul. And we find out that if we look at Scripture like that, then we miss out on the application of what God is wanting to do. God's not looking for a big crusade again to happen in Nineveh. In fact, Nineveh is no longer a city. It's no longer there. It's a city of ruins. So what is God calling us to? From this text, we can understand that, yes, Jonah was called to Nineveh, but where are we called to go? 
What group of people has God uniquely gifted us to go and share the message with Je- of Jesus Christ with them? You say, well, Tim, I'm not, I'm not uh, ready to do that. Tim, I, I don't have the gifts to do that. Tim, you don't know the sins that I've committed. Well, that's what I love about Jonah. Jonah's the most unqualified individual, and yet God gives him a, not only a first chance, but a second chance to proclaim the gospel to the people that God had called him to be a part of. So where? It's in the neighborhood, the workplace, in the school. Where has God uniquely called you as an individual? As we think about the strategic calling, I began to think about where has God called this church? Almost 40 years ago, a small group of people got together and thought it was God's will. And I believe it was with all my heart as I look back. They believed that it was God's plan to plant a church here in Sugar Grove. Now, I don't know what sparked it in the mind of those people, but for some reason they looked at Sugar Grove like God looked at Nineveh. Now, there could have been a lot of reasons why people would have said Sugar Grove shouldn't be a place where God would plant a church, a lighthouse in the community, to win the people of Sugar Grove. I'm not sure why they would have done it. I'm sure there were a lot of reasons why they shouldn't have done it, but they did. And now after all these years, God has created not just a a small church, but a large and growing and vibrant church for a reason. The reason isn't so we can just get together and have great worship, hear a message and have great community, but it is to go out and change the world, especially beginning with the sugar grove of our world. Looking at it as God views sugar grove. Now, there has been a long legacy of faithful and ongoing evangelism and service that has gone on from this church. I've been a part of it for over 20 years, and I've seen it. But I'm going to say this, and I don't mean to offend anybody here. While those have been great things that we've done in the past, we are a far larger church with more resources, more staff, more people, more gifts than ever before. And if we think that we just have to live in light of the past, then we have not only failed ourselves, but we have failed the God that we serve. God has called us to reach our Nineveh, Sugar Grove, for Jesus Christ. But you say, Tim, you know, hey, they're not interested. Either was Nineveh. But Tim, you don't understand. Uh, we, uh, we know that they're blinded by their sin. They don't know anything better than to live the way they do. Why would they accept the gospel? Well, Nineveh was blinded by their sin and they accepted the message of repentance. But you say, Tim, we're a few hundred people in a city of almost 10,000. Well, God used one man in a city of a couple hundred thousand and it changed the city. What can we do for the cause of Christ. You see, if we look at Sugar Grove with all of its issues and all of its struggles, and we say, you know what? It's not worth the time and the energy. Then we begin to view Nineveh, or I'm sorry, Sugar Grove as Jonah viewed Nineveh in chapter one and two. But if we begin to look at our city, and not just a city here in Sugar Grove, but whatever city that we live in, wherever God has called us to, then we begin to view it as God does. That is the first step to moving forward to what God has to offer. 
Now, I know that there's been a lot of questions. The elders have brought up this issue of, of church adoptions. Of course, many of you know we have been approached by a couple churches in our area to come alongside them and to help serve them. And the question has come to me numerous times, why would we do that? And I want to speak very clearly to you, not as an elder board, but as one elder, so you can get mad at me. My question back to you is, why wouldn't we do that? Why wouldn't we do the great commandment of loving our neighbors as ourselves to fulfill the great commission of going and making disciples and changing the world for Jesus Christ? If we truly believe that God has called us to the Ninevehs of this world, then we should not just be thinking of one way to do that, but we should be opening up the floodgates to serve our communities in whatever way. I was awakened months ago by a dream, and the dream was the following. The dream was that I saw a Fox Valley, and you can say, Tim, you're getting charismatic on me. I don't know what it was, but let me tell you, I saw a Fox Valley that experienced such revival and such excitement for the Lord that there were not enough churches to contain the people coming to know Christ that we needed to build more churches. And I went to the elders and I articulated that. And I said, I don't know how it works. And I I came up with this idea, this idea that I entitled Operation Our Town. And the Operation Our Town was we would strategically go to neighborhoods and cities. And for a period of two years, we would impact that neighborhood and that city with the love of Jesus Christ. And we would do it to make disciples, converts for Jesus Christ. And then a couple weeks later, We get word from a couple different churches not knowing anything of what's going on. And they say, hey, we've watched what you guys are doing. We've seen the impact that you're starting to have. Help us be able to have that impact as well. And so we said, we don't know. Is this it? Is this the fulfillment of of what we believe is a next opportunity of great commission work? We don't know. But we're working towards that. And today we are hearing, and this is the glorious thing, today there are three congregations that are hearing a message to go, not just one, not just one of us that is is going out and saying, okay, we need to change uh, our cities for Jesus Christ. But there's three churches today that are preaching the same text with the same vision in mind, how to spark the heart of our people to go out to their communities and win people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how revival takes place. By going and joining hands with one another and saying it's not good enough for us to do this by ourselves, but to do it with one another. Do you have a heart like that for your world? Do you actually believe that God would do it? You say, Tim, uh, it's probably not very realistic. Tim, that's probably not going to happen. You know, I wonder if Jonah was thinking the same thing. I wonder if he was saying, what can one man do? What can one person do in a city of thousands? But you know what? I I believe that God is still changing places like Nineveh. I believe that he can change Sugar Grove, Elburn, Yorkville, Oswego, Aurora, Montgomery, North Aurora, Batavia, Plano, Sandwich, Hinkley, Big Rock, Maple Park, Caneville, and everyone that I did not share, that he could change those places. And it takes one person following the one call of God. What would God do if he worked in the heart of the 700 who call Village Bible Church their home? What could happen? The miracles that could take place. 
So you'd say, Tim, of course we feel that way. Tim, of course we want to do that. But what keeps us from actually going down the street and talking to our neighbors about Christ? What keeps us from impacting the community uh, of Sugar Grove, of going and uh, reaching the far-off places where our missionaries are serving? What keeps us from doing that? I want to tell you it is the same things that kept Jonah from fully realizing, even in chapter 3, what God had called him to be a part of. And so we need to be reminded of some things as we look at this text. Number one, write this in your outlines. We need to be reminded about God's passion for the cities of the world. We need to understand that God has a passion. He loves the cities of this world. And that is seen more in Nineveh than, than almost any other place in the Scriptures. Now, when God calls Jonah to Nineveh, he adds an adjective to the city's title. He doesn't just say, hey, go to Nineveh. Turn in your Bibles just a back a page if you need to, to chapter 1, verse 2. Notice what he says. Go to the, what does it say? Great city of Nineveh. Now, why does he add that? He adds it again in verse uh, 2 of chapter 3. Go to the great city of Nineveh. And then in in, uh, verse 3 of chapter 3, it is added that now Nineveh was an important city. Now, why all that would be said? What is trying to be accomplished? What made Nineveh so great, so important? Well, there's three things that I want to look at this morning. First of all, its size. Nineveh was great in relation or in terms of its size. Now, the ancient city of Nineveh was a booming metropolis where Jonah was going was not some small town, but a large town. Now, scholars debate exactly how large Nineveh was. According to secular uh, historians and archaeological findings, Nineveh was probably anywhere between 120 to 175,000 people. Now, it may have been even larger if you add the cities of Nimrud and, uh, let's see here, Husbad, which were found on the south and west side of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And just like any major city today, there would have been surrounding communities. If you were to add those communities up, the size of Nineveh could have been as large as a half a million people. We are talking a large area. Now you say, Tim, there's no way back in ancient, uh, in the ancient Middle East that you would have that size. I am not giving you biblical scholars. I am speaking to you of what secular historians say about this ancient city of Nineveh. Now, this city was known as the greatest city in the Mideast. It was a, a part of the greatness of the city was, was this. Number one, to give you a size before I talk about its greatness, the size of the city was about three miles long by three miles wide, a total of nine square miles. Now, you say, what is nine square miles? I did a study of the size of Sugar Grove. Sugar Grove is approximately 7.2 square miles in its total uh, width and length. So it's about the size of that. Yorkville's just a hair bigger than that. And so we are talking about a gross area of the village confines uh, of uh, Sugar Grove or Yorkville. About a third bigger than those two communities. A lot more densely populated, of course. But then we also see that it's a famed city. 
As a result of where it's located, it finds itself on the trade routes between the Mediterranean Sea and the Indian Ocean. And so all kinds of merchants, all kinds of traders would find themselves in the city of Nineveh. It had a major highway system through it that allowed for people from the north, from the south, from the east and the west to converge on this great city of Nineveh. It had a 40-foot high wall that was unearthed, uh, I believe, about 80 years ago. And uh, this unearthed wall, we learned that it was about 40 feet tall. And it went around the circumference of the city. And as a result of that, this wall was so high that no intruder ever wanted to attack the city of Nineveh. In fact, this wall was not just high, it was wide. It was said that three chariots could run the width of it at the top of the wall. This was a major wall, not just, you know, one of those patio brick walls that you build in your backyard. This was a huge wall. It had hundreds of gates. It had a massive aqueduct system that brought water from the nearby Tigris River. And it had the palace of the king of Assyria in it. One of the most famed uh, kings of all of Assyria's history was the king Sennacherib. And Sennacherib was a king that desired the most lavish things. And he built, and we uh, found this about 45 years ago, the palace of Sennacherib. And it was about this size, about the size of some of your homes. It was 1,650 feet by 794 feet. It's about a house in Sugar Grove, I would think. It had 80 rooms. They say 80 rooms, a lot of those must have been the small bathrooms. Well, most of them were able to accommodate hundreds of people at one time. And 10 of them were able to accommodate more than a 1,000 people within its room. This is a huge palace. The palace was so big as archaeologists unearthed the the, the breadth of it, they saw that there were literally uh, streets that went through the palace. It was this big. This is a great city. In fact, archaeologists found about 38 years ago, 10,000, and I'm telling you this, 10,000 feet long of sculptures and walls full of art that speak to the greatness and the volume of wonder found in this incredible city. They say, why don't we hear much about this? I think you will begin to. The reason why you didn't hear much about it is for the last 30 years, there was a guy named Saddam Hussein who said, nobody comes into my country and nobody in the last really 30 years has been a part of Nineveh as an archaeologist. But as things begin to tone down in Iraq, we are going to hear more and more about this great city of Nineveh. It was a famed city. But not only was it great because of its size and its status, but it was great in its sin. Write that down. It was great in its sin. The prophets many times spoke of the vile behavior of the Assyrians. Turn in your Bibles. If you're in the book of Jonah, you're going to go uh, to your right a couple pages. You're going to go through the book of Malachi to the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum, a minor prophet. And we're going to look at Nahum chapter 3. And we're going to learn about the city of Nineveh. 
In chapter 2, Nahum is prophesying that Nineveh is going to fall. This great city is going to be destroyed by people who are going to come into this, this, this city and plunder it. But in chapter 3, he gives the reason why this upheaval is going to come to this city. And this is what he says, Woe to you, Nineveh, city of blood. You're full of lies. You're full of plunder. You're never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, uh, flashing swords, and glittering spears. The idea there is they're getting ready for war. Well, what happens when they do all that? There are many casualties. There's piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a harlot, alluring, the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. What is Nahum telling us? He's telling us these are some bad people. They are bad for a couple different reasons. Number one, they were the sworn enemies of God. Well, why did God dislike the people of Nineveh so much? Well, number one, they worshipped other gods. They served other gods. And their gods told them that what they needed to do as they worshiped these gods, they were led to the idea that they needed to do not only destroy uh, their um, the cities around them, but they were to do it in such wicked fashion, to destroy in such a way that would bring calamity to all the lives of those they were a part of. They were ferocious fighters. and for, In fact, Sennacherib, this great king, who was one of the most vicious generals and kings on any list of, of who are the worst of leaders in history, Sennacherib would always make the top ten. And the reason why is some of the statements that he made. This is what he would say after destroying a city. He would say, Now that we have destroyed a city, let us destroy its inhabitants, young and old, I will not spare. And with their corpses, I will fill the streets of the city." He would go on to say how sweet it is to see the blood of young and old fill the city. This is what Nahum's talking about. These were a bloodthirsty people. Why doesn't Jonah want to go? Because he knows the kind of stuff that these guys were made of. In fact, in Jonah chapter 1, turn there for a moment. There's an important thing that we did not address in the first chapter of Jonah because I wanted to get to this point in our series. And that's the following in verse 2. Jonah's told to go to the city of, great city of Nineveh, preach against it, but why? Why, God, do you want Jonah to preach against this city? He says, because its wickedness has come up before me. In our uh, English translations, that doesn't make a lot of sense. To us, it says, okay, he, he being all-knowing, is aware of what uh, the Ninevites have done, and, and he's not happy with it. In the Hebrew, what it literally means is that Nineveh's sin was in his face. I mean, it was right there. The idea in the Hebrew is literally he was sniffing it. He was looking at it. He couldn't look to the left or to the right. It was right there. And he could not get beyond their sin. But there's a lot of sin in a lot of places. Nineveh was such a wicked city that it was right there in God's face. And so God says, I want you to go and I want you to preach against it. Now do we understand why Jonah says, forget it, God. I'm going to go the other way. I know what's been said of these people. These are wicked, wicked people. 
So why is it if they're so wicked and they're so consumed by the pleasures and the desires of building a city for their own fame and glory, why would God call it a great city, an important city? Again, in the Hebrew is the only way we can understand it because it's not just a great city as we would call Chicago a great city. But the reason why God calls it a great city is because it was important to him. In the Hebrew, literally, this was an important city to God. We don't see that in our English translations, but that's what the Hebrew idiom there is talking about. It was important to God. Do you really believe that Sugar Grove or the town you live in is important to God? That's what God is saying of Nineveh. Despite all their sins and all their struggles and all their pursuit for all they want to gain, God says, Nineveh is important to me. But why? Because of its size? Because of its sin? No. But because of the souls. Write that down. Because there were souls in need of saving. God sees their sin, yes. God sees all that they had created. But when He looks at all that, He doesn't see that in the city. Remember, as God looks at individuals, he does not look at the outward appearance of man. Would we believe, would we say that God doesn't look at the outward appearance of cities as a whole, but that he looks at the internal parts of who we are, the things that we cannot see with human eyes? God looks beyond. He doesn't mean that he lets it go. But instead of focusing just on their sin and the things that they're pursuing, he looks to the very heart of who they are. He sees wicked, but he does not want to see them destroyed. The scriptures tell us that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God did not delight and say, you know what? They're a sinful people. They haven't done what I've wanted them to, so I'm going to destroy them. He, 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 he. That's not what he says. He says, I do not delight in that. In fact, it says, and Jonah gets mad about this, that God is compassionate. He is a compassionate and merciful God. So he does the exact opposite. He doesn't say, I want to destroy them. He says, I want to save them. Do you believe that God, filled with all the sinners that Sugar Grove has, that God has a desire to save through his compassion and mercy the people of this city? Do we honestly believe that? That God is that gracious and merciful that he would serve our community in such a way? That he would show such grace and mercy in that way? He did with Nineveh. Why wouldn't he do it with the town that you live in? And so God, we see, is concerned about the cities of this world. He cares about them. He's watched them grow. He's helped them grow. He's given them the ability to do all that the cities of this world are able to do. And now he wants to see us reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God loves Sugar Grove. God loves the little town of Hinkley where I live. God loves the community where you live. And he sees the hurts and he sees the sin just as we do. But we need to see and we need to take time to begin to build a passion for the city that we live in because God has a passion for it. So why is it that Jonah doesn't see this? Why is it that Jonah doesn't say, all right, God, I get it. You love Nineveh. I will love Nineveh. Why is it that when we know and understand that God loves the city we live in or the people of this city, that we don't in turn with the same passion and the same zeal love that city as much as as God does? 
Well, as we look at it, we see something in Jonah that causes some trouble. And that's where we're reminded of the prejudices that condemn others. The prejudices that condemn others. Here's the problem. As Jonah is making his approach into Nineveh, he is thinking through and working through how he is going to approach the city. But I will tell you there are five mistakes that Jonah makes. There are five mistakes that Jonah makes. And because of that, the whole reason for his running away from God and not following God's command for the whole reason of after the time that Nineveh repents, that then he goes and he's so sad and he says, I just want to die. Why would these people repent? This guy's got some real issues. He should be excited. He's been a part of the greatest revival in human history. And he's not happy that God has saved him. Why? Because Jonah makes five mistakes when he observes the lost. And there are five mistakes that we make as well. The first thing that we see that Jonah did was he observed them nationally. He viewed them nationally, not individually. Write that down. He, he uh, uh, saw them nationally, not as individually. Now, we do this as well. And this is what, uh, what uh, Jonah was thinking. There's no question of it in my mind. He had this idea that all Ninevites, all Assyrians are to go to hell. Go. God doesn't want you. You're sinners. You deserve hell. You deserve judgment, condemnation. Whatever God brings, it's not enough because you deserve ten times what that is. And so what does he do? He lumps them together. We call this in our modern day vernacular stereotyping. Because you are a part of a city, because you're a part of something, we, out of our sinfulness, don't just look at everybody as God does, as individuals. Aren't you glad that God doesn't say, uh, when you get to heaven, oh, you were a part of the city of Hinkley. That wasn't on the list. Aren't you glad God doesn't stereotype you? That God doesn't look and say, oh, a badal. I've heard about you guys. Uh-uh. Aren't you glad that it's on uh, the merits of Jesus Christ and it's on a decision that you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ for the admittance into heaven and all that it affords that God doesn't look out into this great uh, group of people and say, you know what, you're all bad. I don't even need to talk with any of you because I know what kind of people you are. You know, you come late to church, you, you, uh, you don't sing, you don't do the things that I ask you to. I know how y'all are. I don't have to talk with you because I already know. And yet that's what we do. And you say, well, Tim, I, I, you know, come on, Tim. I, I don't do that. Let me tell you something. On Friday, I was at a rehearsal dinner and I was sitting and enjoying and some people that were at my table are here today. And I wasn't confronted by anybody but the Holy Spirit. I made a stereotypical and I will say a racial comment out of fun and it was sin. It was sin. Because I lumped a whole group of people together and I made an assertion that was sin. And we don't get that. We say, well, you know, Tim, they deserve it. Baloney, they deserve it. You want to be stereotyped? You want God to look at the whole lot of humanity? You know what he would say if he stereotyped everybody? You're all dead. You all deserve hell. But God says, but I love you, 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 you. Why? Because he doesn't stereotype the people. He loves them as individuals. He looks at Nineveh, Jonah does. 
as them as a whole lot. Had Jonah spent any time going into Nineveh and going through and surveying the people and saying, okay, do you love God? And all of them say no. Do you hate God? All of them say yes. Do you desire to do anything with God? All of them say no. He could have then, after doing all that, going door to door and figuring out all the polling information, he could have at the end of the day possibly come to that, but he never does it. He, we know of no time that he ever spent in Nineveh. He never finds himself in that location, but he's already judged them. He has already had a prejudice against the people of Nineveh, and as a result of that, he doesn't want to go serve them. Some of us feel that we won't serve in some areas because those people deserve what they're getting. I won't go to the inner city. They deserve it. They're shooting each other. They're doing their drugs, all that stuff. It's easy for us here in suburban America to look down on the inner city. I don't want to go serve in Africa. They're all doing all their things, getting AIDS and all that. Why would I want to go? They deserve what they've got. That is the thinking of Jonah with Nineveh. Next, he sees them not just as a national group of people, but he sees them historically rather than prophetically. Jonah's hatred for the Ninevites is because what he read about them. He had seen the press clippings. He had seen that the Ninevites were haters of God. He saw that the Ninevites were ferocious people. He saw that the Ninevites were people that would destroy anything that resembled worship of his God. And he says, you know what? I've seen what you've done. I know what you've done. I know the kind of track record you have. I've done a background check. And you're no good. I'll tell you, that is a defeating place of evangelism. Because if that's where we're at, we have already condemned people that God has not yet condemned. We take the place of God by saying you can do nothing because what you've already done in the past. I've told you time and time again that one of the most debilitating things in my growing up were people, Christian people, who would look at my past and would say, you're not going to do anything good. Look at all the mistakes you have made. Look at all of them. Why, why would God use someone like you? Well, and you say, well, people don't say that. People did to me all the time. Broke my heart. Now, I gave them good reason to think that way, just like the Ninevites. I made it easy for people to look at my mistakes and say, come on, this guy's never going to put it together. He's never going to get himself straight and, and figure things out. But had someone said that to me, and had I believed that, then we wouldn't have a preacher here today. Because God would have never worked in my heart. It took a youth pastor from this church to take me out and say, forget what God, or forget what people have said about your past. He says, that's the work of the devil. The devil accuses the brethren of what they've done in the past. He says, God speaks about the future. You want to look at the city in a different way? You look at them prophetically. What can God do in changing the community for Jesus Christ? He looked at what Nineveh had done in the past. He never thought of what God might do to Nineveh in the future. Don't call out people and judge them and say it's because of what they've done in the past. Look to what God can do in the future. God can change the life of a rebellious young man. He can change the life of a city. If he did that in the Old Testament in Nineveh, he can do that here in the Fox Valley area. The next thing we see is he looked at them physically rather than spiritually. 
The third mistake that Jonah makes to the Ninevites is he saw that what they had done physically, he saw their sinful behavior and he couldn't get beyond it. He saw their sin and that's all he could respond to. They are wicked people. They've done these wicked things. I can't get beyond it. How could God change their life? And you say, well, how how do I do that in my own life? We do that all the time. When we look at our neighbors and we look at the people in our cities, we look at them and we see a drunk. We see someone who is a a sexually immoral individual. We look at them and we say they're a terrible family. We look at them and because they've got tattoos on their arms and earrings, all earrings in places that aren't ears, we sit there and we say, what can God do with them? You know, God can't use them. God uses people that look like me. This is all. You gotta wear a shirt and a tie. You gotta look all well and good. You can't look like that. When we talk with our neighbors, we hear they're cursing and we never think about the spiritual need. And so we say, well, they're a bad influence on us. We can't spend time with them. They may teach my children bad words. A couple days ago, my, uh, my, uh, a couple weeks ago, in fact, my uh, son was a part of an altercation down the street. Scared the daylights out of me. I saw, I knew Noah was down the street with a whole group of six and seven year olds. And I see the cop car go by with the lights on. And first thought should be, is he okay? It wasn't that. It was like, what has happened? You know, what have they done? And I get down the street, and what has happened is there is a uh, a man in our neighborhood who has caused all kinds of a ruckus because these six- and seven-year-old boys are making too much noise riding on the sidewalk with their bikes. He gets angry, and he starts using every word you can think of in the book. And so Noah is, Noah just is mad. Why is this guy yelling at us? And he comes and he starts telling me the words that is being said. And he's not getting them all right. The neighbor kid is. The neighbor kid's got them spot on. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, just okay, quiet, boy, quiet. I don't, and so Noah thinks that the neighbor called him a buttockser. And, uh, and he's not sure what that word means, but we're going with it. So uh, if you hear that in Sunday school, the reason why is because this drunk guy down the street went off. Now, I was ticked at this guy. How dare this man speak out to my child like that? I have a six-year-old boy. What kind of fool speaks that kind of language to a six-year-old boy? And by the time I got back to the house, I was so angry. I wanted to deal with this man. This kid's, this guy's hurting my son of innocence. And I never thought to think about, you know what? That man is on his way to hell and he doesn't even know it. So my son learned a bad word. He's going to. He's a badal. We mess up. (laughs) But never did I think that man is dead and blind to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if I look at him as the loser that I think he is, then I will never, please hear me, I will never win him with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've written him off. You're going to talk that way to my son? You deserve hell. That's what Jonah was doing with Nineveh. He looked at them next ethnically rather than personally. The reason why he looks at uh, Nineveh that way is because they're not Jewish. They're different than us. There's no question that their skin types would have been different. Their language would have been different. 
The issues that they were dealing with would have been different. The food that they ate would have been different. They are just different people. And we as Christians, especially here in white suburban America, better understand that this is not a white church, but just as we learned in Sugar Grove, I'm sorry, in Sugar Grove, in Sunday school class, that Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are what? Precious in his sight. And so people don't look like us. Good, you're ugly. Get used to it. It's good to bring some good-looking people into this church. We need to understand that when we look at people ethnically, we destroy the very fabric of God, our Creator. Aren't you glad that God didn't make everyone looking like me? Aren't you glad that you're different? That we have different color skin, different types of hair, different languages. Why? Because we will see a miracle when we stand in glory. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of every tribe, tongue, and nation that will stand before God and will say, God, now we got it. But we got people. We've got people. My name tag's falling off. I'm sweating too much. We've got people that have issue... Uh, with with uh, people because they're different colors. Guys, the nation got over this. And yet the country has it. I'm sorry, the church hasn't. Martin Luther King he said this. He said that the most segregated hour in all of America is Sunday morning in our churches. we got to fix that. Now, I'm not saying we just start bussing in people of all demographics to try to get in here. But we better do as much as we can to be on the forefront of opening the doors to utter diversity in this place. Because we want to see all who desire to worship Jesus be welcomed here at Village Bible Church. Finally, he looks at them hatefully and not mercifully. He looks at them through a viewpoint of hate. Jonah's whole view of Nineveh is one of hatred. He hates them. I don't need to spend a lot of time here, but there are some of us who hate the cities that we live in. And we hate them for a lot of different reasons. We hate them because of the people that are serving us in the village boards and a part of uh, our political systems. There are reasons why we hate it because we don't like the school systems. We hate it because of the neighbor that lives next door to us for whatever reason. And it may be small, but that we really don't care about the cities that we live in. Jonah didn't care about the Ninevites. He didn't. And so when God gives him the message to go, he says, you know what? No, I'll I'll go this way. I'd rather do it my way. I want to tell you something. This offends me greatly, what Jonah did. And the reason why is he stereotypes the Ninevites. I've told you, the Ninevites, or the the city of Nineveh is the uh, uh, Assyrian capital. I am 50% Assyrian. And Jonah didn't ever think about me. He never thought that there would be an Assyrian who would proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. And I'm not the only one. There's two other Assyrian pastors in my family. He would never think that the Assyrians would be the only bastion of hope for the Je- uh, for Yahweh, Jehovah God, in the nation of Iraq. He never would think about that. He would never know of the issues of uh, Muslim, the Muslim faith and Islam. He wouldn't see it because he viewed the people through his own eyes instead of the eyes of God. Do you do that this morning? Do you view the city that you live in, the people that you live around, do you view them through your own eyes or through the eyes of God? 
You see, you can't get to anything more until you figure that out. i got to get this thing closed, so let's get to our third point. The third point is the following. Once you get that all straight, you got to figure out your part in the Great Commission. I wasn't planning on being here long, so let's move through it so we get done here. Jonah's called to go and proclaim. We are called to go and proclaim. Keith has just talked about the Great Commission. We are to go and make disciples. Jonah was to go and seek a revival of repentance. We are given the same charge. We're not to just stay here and do it. It is not to build it and they will come. Jonah wasn't told to to build a church in Judah and then allow all the people of the Ninevites to come to him. We are to go to them just as Jonah did. And what do we see that that involves? It involves some things. I want you to write this down. It's very practical. There's no Bible verses to it. I'm sure I could find hundreds of them. But I want us to just get into the action of doing. Number one, you want to fulfill the Great Commission here in Sugar Grove and the uttermost parts of the world? Start loving your city. Do you love the city of Sugar Grove? I will tell you, it took me a couple years uh, into my adult life before I really began to love my city of Hinkley that I began to see myself strategically called to that city. Now, I don't know how God's going to use it, but God has already used it. God has called uh, in times of tragedy. I've gotten phone calls. I don't even serve in the churches in Hinkley, and they call me when the high school has issues and struggles. And I praise God. Thank you, God. I don't have many people in Hinkley uh, that come to Village Bible Church. And yet God has allowed people to be remembering, you know, Hey, Tim Bedall, he, he's, he walks with God. He, he serves God. Let's, let's give him a call. Let's, let's ask him what his thoughts are. Do you love the city? One man once said, get me Scotland or I'll die. Do we believe that if God doesn't give us Sugar Grove or our city that we live in, that we would die? Number two, are you praying for your city? When was the last time you prayed for the city of Sugar Grove? This is something that, that is on my heart all the time. When was the last time we as a congregation prayed for our city? prayed that God would give us Sugar Grove. Do we really believe that he would do that? Well, he did it with Nineveh, a much bigger task with one person. Why wouldn't he give us a whole city of 10,000 with a church that has more than 700 people in it? That's not that big of a difference in, in, in percentages. We've got a good thing going for us if we would get serious and start giving it to the Lord. Have you prayed for your city Number two, have you engaged your city? Are you engaging with your city? Are you doing all that you can to get involved in it? You say, well, Tim, but I'm busy at the church. That's fine. Engage your city. Find opportunities to engage yourself in the city life. Don't find yourself so busy doing the things of church and Christianity that the only thing your neighbors see is your car driving in and your car driving out. Engage your neighbors. Get to know your neighbors. Engage them with the love of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you go out and take the four spiritual laws to them even though you've never talked to them before. Invite them over for dinner. Start a conversation with them. Engage them so that they will know that there are some real people living next door to them. Next, serve your city. How can you show the love of Christ in your service to others? The snow's coming. How many driveways can you shovel? How many lawns can you mow? How can you help in in serving, in watching kids, in in, uh, taking care of issues? Uh, Not too long ago, we had our neighbor just down the way. uh, He has a couple teenage daughters. 
And uh, at one point I saw a car that was sitting out with a young man in the car late at night. And, uh, and I, I didn't like what I saw. But it's not my business. Who am I to say what's going on? And the Lord says, you need to go deal with that. You need to go deal with that. It's not my point. They'll get mad at me. I don't know what's going on. And I went to that car. I knocked on the window. There's a nice 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid who's desiring to have a rendezvous with the 14-year-old girl at the house. They've got it all planned out and everything. And I said, I think it's time for you to go. He said, who are you? I said, I'm the neighbor. (laughs) And he says, well, I'm not going to leave. I said, you better leave. I know the father. And the neighbor just says nice things. The father ain't going to be very happy that you're here. And he left. The guy left. And I figured that probably that, that rendezvous was over. And a couple weeks later, that man came to me and said, I'm so thankful that there's a guy down the street who's worried about my daughters like I am. I said, that's Lord. I didn't even know. I wasn't sitting there going, I'm serving the Lord. I'm going to go do this. But the Lord gave opportunities. Engage and serve your city. Show your neighbors the love of Jesus Christ. Witness. Don't just serve them. Don't just be the nice guy down the street that mows grasses and and shovels driveways, but bring them the gospel. Bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. When was the last time? I want you to ask this question. When was the last time you spoke out the gospel of Jesus Christ to anybody in your city, in your neighborhood? If it's been more than uh, a couple months, we've got some issues we need to deal with. Finally, do we believe in winning our city? Do we view Sugar Grove or the cities that we live in just as Nineveh was, that it could be won with one miracle of revival? I say all this because we're going to have 400 kids here in the next week. And we're not just going to be able to reach those kids, but we are going to be able to reach their parents. And do we really believe that God could change a city this week? Do we believe that God could change a city in that way? Jonah was a little candle in a city of darkness. And because of that candle that burned brightly, God changed a city. Do you believe that can happen today? If you do, then you're on your way to seeing revival. Before I close our time, you're going to be handed a piece of paper, a couple pieces of paper. It is a demographic study of the city of Sugar Grove. It's a, it's a survey that was done uh, just last year that talks about everything from its population to its ethnicity to its uh, desire uh, of uh, receptivity to the faith walk with God. And I want you to look at this and not just look at it as a piece of paper, but begin to look at it and say, God has called us to this place. If you want, if you live in Yorkville or any of the other surrounding communities, I can get you a copy of every one. It's a group called Percept uh, Group that does these studies. And it's an amazing study. And this is, to be honest with you, just the free one that they get. But I can get for you a 29-page analysis of your city and what the people in your city are desiring when it comes to their walk with God and the things that most concern them. You're going to be handed out the short one for Sugar Grove. Look over it, and I want you to pray over it and say, God, how can we take these numbers and create in them an opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. And Lord, we have been given the charge, not by a preacher, but by a prophet, who did it all wrong. And Lord, we're doing it all wrong. Change our hearts. 
creating us a desire to be something more than just a Christian undercover, but one who engages the community around them and in doing so sees a harvest of souls for Christ. Lord, we have so many opportunities, more than we ever would ever acknowledge to, to say that are there. But Lord, let us start taking advantage of them. Let us stop being disobedient and stop living for Christ in the small ways, praying for the opportunity that we will be able to open our mouths with the message of the gospel. Lord, I know that you could change this city. And I know you could change it because you could work in the hearts of people here to get serious about the cities around us. Lord, change our hearts, ignite them so that we will be lights. We will be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. It's for your glory and grace and for your honor that we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen.